Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Global leaders and climate experts are in Dubai for COP28, the annual international climate summit convened by the United Nations. With the global temperatures rising and extreme weather events becoming more frequent, the pressure is on for countries to find more effective ways to reduce carbon emissions. So where are we now on climate change? What more needs to be done? And can we do it in a timely manner? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Carl Fay, Professor of Strategy at the EB Norwegian Business School in Oslo, and Ivan Joe, Managing Director and a Senior Partner of Boston Consulting Group, and Joshua Xiang, President of Macau Institute of Industrial Technology, who is also the Managing Partner of JCB Capital. Welcome to Dialogue. Now we have a big gathering in Dubai with a focus on climate change. Uh, so Ivan, I will start with you. What are the priorities, you know, what issues we need to pay attention to? There will be three main aspects that are the focus of this year's COP. Uh, one is on the mitigation side. There will be a major stock taking to see how the different countries have been progressing uh, with their climate uh, commitment. Uh, the second one is on the adaptation and the resilience, uh, especially you know, regarding the just transition when there's a lot of developing countries that are vulnerable to the climate risk uh, but uh, do not have enough uh, funding to solve their problems. Uh, which is the third one. The, the, I think probably the, one of the largest issues is on the green financing. There is a major gap in the investment needed to what's already on the table. Uh, I think there will be a, a major announcement in this year's COP. Mm -hmm. on new initiative in yeah. the green financing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Carl, we know like uh, since uh, the world agreed with each other on the uh, so-called Paris Agreement in 2015, it's been eight years. And where are we now in the fight against the climate change? Are we making progress as uh, planned? So I think we are making some progress, but not nearly enough. Uh, if we continue at this point, we're never going to meet the uh, 1.5 degree goal. Uh, you know, if we look at COP27, I think that was the success there was actually the multilateral agreements, not the agreements between all countries. And I hope that we might uh, have more agreements between all countries uh, in COP28. But if that doesn't work, I hope that one will fall back and at least have some uh, multilateral agreements, which really were uh, useful from COP27. Secondly, I think it's really important to be measuring we haven't always measured enough. And if you uh, measure enough, so this stock taking report, I think has been a really good initiative and I hope this will be followed. Uh, thirdly, I think we really need to be thinking about uh, the sort of inclusive uh, focus on this and developing countries really need to be helped out by the developed countries. This has been started and actually China has really been a, a leader in this regard, but other countries also need to help out. And finally, we need to make sure that we have availability of finance uh, for especially these developing countries, but we for these uh, green initiatives. But we need to make sure that it doesn't put them in a debt trap. In other words, that they take on more debt than they can do. So one needs some sort of balance uh, between uh, some maybe uh, uh, sort of gifts of money and, and some uh, loans. And one way to maybe uh, help with the finance will be to make sure that we're able to leverage more the private financial uh, contributions as well. This is multiplier effect, as some people say, is one thing that hasn't worked out as well as many would hope. 
Mm -hmm. well, Joshua, what do you make of this uh, year's Climate Change Summit here? Uh, what do you see as uh, the major challenges we need to overcome you know, for the international community in order to meet the targets and goals we set for, for ourselves? Yes, uh, there are a lot of challenges and also a lot of obstacles. And, and those actually, sometimes some of them are very significant. The first, uh, as the other two guests already mentioned, the, the cost. I mean, transitioning to renewable energy and reducing emissions can be very expensive. And some countries may lack the financial resources or political will to make the necessary investments. And also the dependency, dependence on fossil fuels. Some countries rely heavily on fossil fuels for energy and employment, making it difficult to shift to more sustainable options. And also the third, the lack of the infrastructure. In many parts of the world, the infrastructure needed to support renewable energy, like electric vehicle charging stations and the grid storage is lacking, making it harder for transition. And also the last but not the least, political instability or conflict. As you know, there are wars going on in the, in the world. In some regions, political instability and tensions and conflicts can hinder efforts to address, address this climate change. So these are several obstacles, challenges facing, facing us. Mm -hmm. Well, related to that, Joshua, you mentioned about this political inability or you know, the conflicts. I wonder how the world is distracted uh, you know, by, the, by the conflicts like in Ukraine, in Gaza, and of course, including economic conflicts, the tensions between China and the US, the two largest countries there. Uh, so how, you know, how, how do those kind of tensions, issues, affect countries' uh, ability or you know, their, their, their energy, let's say, you, know, you focus on the climate change, you know, probably affect their ability to achieve their goal? Absolutely. Actually, uh, uh, you just gave the examples I mean, between China and, and the U.S. I mean, we just saw the APEC summit. I mean, the President Xi Jinping and President Biden, they met after a long period of time we need to make sure we continually, continuously keep talking, keep the dialogue open, even though there are tensions, even wars in the world. So that's the key. So we need to make sure we have a consistent and continuous system in place so that everybody, every party in this uh, uh, conference, uh, everybody in the world should participate, even though they are enemies to some extent. So we cannot stop talking. So that's the key. So we need to make sure this system keeps going on, especially in this COP28 conference. I hope we have a systematic way to make sure all the parties were participating, uh, communicating without uh, hindering uh, the, the Paris Agreement, the goal. Mm -hmm. That's, I, I think, dialogue communication is, is the key. Yeah, Ivan, Can please. I add to this? Because it's such an important question and I get asked a lot. First, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine, and they say we can see, you know, the Europe reaction to the war in Ukraine because it, you know, the, the disruption of the gas supply, Germany restart the coal plant. So there is a lot of people asking me, that it mean that Europe is, you know, backing out of their climate commitment and back to their traditional energy? I think we need to look at this short term, long term. Short term wise, of course, yes, the, the, every country have to secure energy. For, for the people and for the for the economy, but I think longer term, this actually will help the transition to renewable because that actually guarantee a better uh, energy supply and reducing the reliance 
on, on the energy. And the second part to this question, um, I, I think you probably will ask this uh, soon, is um, we see there's a lot of trade barriers or, or protectionism uh, being set up, right? The, the U.S. Uh, uh, Re Inflation Reduction Act have a pretty clear protectionism uh, uh, items. And recently, Europe also have some new regulations uh, along the same. I think this is something I was thinking the whole world would actually need to work together rather against each other. So um, climate is a global issue. And if we work together and leveraging the capacity in the world, leveraging the R&D resource in the world, we can actually achieve the renewable transition at a lower cost and much faster speed. But if every country is trying to set up their own manufacturing, set up their own R&D, this process is going to be so much longer and so much more expensive. So there's, we need to juggle between two priorities. One priority is for the human to finish our climate transition, changing from the uh, traditional energy to the renewable energy. So this is a global issue. Another one is for every country to have their own industry base. And I think the global priority has, uh, the global mission in the climate transition have a higher priority than every country's uh, trade protectionism and developing their own economy. And this is uh, something I think will be debated a lot at COP this year. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Carl, Yvonne mentioned about this, um, I, I think you know, she referred to this uh, renewable energy sector. You see this you know, uh, rise of protectionism in Washington, in Brussels, uh, uh, was like EVs, for example, or solar panels from China. Uh, it, it's about renewable energy development here in China, and then the relationship with uh, all the response, reaction from, from the U.S. market, the European market, they're the big players. Uh, but uh, before that, you know, if you look at these individual countries, uh, they have this, uh, their own targets uh, set by themselves, non-binding, but that's on their own, uh, called nationally determined contributions. Still, I mean, if you look at that, uh, the reportedly that most members will not meet their goals, you know, the timeline. W what are the reasons, you know, what are the factors behind their, let's say, inability to achieve the target set by themselves, Carl? So I think there are a couple things. Uh, number one, uh, I think now one transition that has happened over the last four years or so is that now most countries, I think even all countries in the world, recognize that climate change is an issue that we have to focus on. It used to be a big debate, you know, is it important, is it not important? I think now we can put that behind us. And I think then countries are setting goals uh, with the best of intentions, but things like wars, like other economic issues uh, come up. Um, and change is difficult, we know, and so we all like to sort of keep doing things uh, the way we've done them. Uh, but, uh, for example, uh, Norway has shown where I'm based that there are, in fact, uh, benefits that can come from setting very clear um, incentives for people. So, for example, Norway now has the largest per capita number of electronic vehicles of any country in the world. And this was largely driven by taking away the VAT, making it cheaper if in terms of tolls. There are many tolls on roads. They're cheaper if you have an electronic vehicle. Originally, you could actually use lanes where taxis and buses drive. It's cheaper to park in the center of town. So basically, uh, it is uh, you know, becoming a, a strong incentive uh, for people to uh, buy an electric vehicle car. Uh, if we set the right incentives, people will follow them. 
A second problem with your question, especially when the U.S. comes to mind, is the changes of administration. Unfortunately, there hasn't always been uniformity in policy from one to another, and that's something many people are thinking about now. As you know, the Trump administration wasn't very pro-environment and very concerned about that. The Biden administration, in contrast, has made not perfect, but pretty good progress in this. The biggest thing that they've done, I think, that has been positive is they have said it is going to be a, across all different departments of the government. It used to be one said, oh, it's the Environmental Protection Agency that should focus on this. Now it's supposed to be across all of them. And one of the things Biden has done is call for a review of all policies in the government and ask any person in the government who comes up with a thing that is not a policy that is not really following environmental uh, goals uh, to inform about that and to reflect about how that could potentially be changed. But of course, uh, one of the strengths that China has is that while there surely can be some debate in what goals one develops, generally when China sets a goal, whether that's environmental or otherwise, it has a tendency to be able to follow through and mobilize uh, the companies and the people of China to reach those goals in somewhat, uh, this is one of the benefits of sort of continuity of government. Mm -hmm. Well, Yvonne, I want to continue to talk, you know, you mentioned the interesting point about, you know, protectionism, uh, or the response from other parts of the world. For example, there's a talk of uh, uh, subsidy investigation about the Chinese EVs from the EU. In the US, there's, uh, uh, you mentioned, uh, as you said, Inflation Reduction Act there. Basically, um, you know, they will purchase, uh, uh, consumers will uh, like uh, get these, uh, these subsidies from the government uh, as long as the cars, automobiles, they were produced, they are produced in North America not in European countries, not Asian countries. Uh, so that's protecting the industry here. I mean, how do you make of this, uh, you know, what do you make of these kind of moves? On one hand, it does make sense probably for the government, like, oh, we need to protect our industry. On the other hand, you know, if you talk about climate change, we need more renewable energies uh, and vehicles and, and solar panels there. I think the Chinese uh, renewable players not only uh, contribute to China's uh, transition to renewable energy, it also contributes to the world significantly by lowering the cost of the renewable. If we use solar, the Chinese players successfully lowered the solar cost by 90% in the last 10 years. Without the, the Chinese players, you know, the, the transition will be even more expensive and impossible. So this is a message I always try to give to our global clients and global audience. Uh, China, with its large market scale, is probably not always subsidy. Actually, we were just discussing yesterday on what is the success behind Chinese renewable players. It's actually, subsidy may play a small part, but the biggest uh, part of contributor is actually the size of China's market. Uh, you know, it's, it's well known that China has the largest market, and when you have the largest market, you scale up very quickly and cost will fall. And this is not only benefiting China, but benefiting the world. So my concern of US and Europe goes to the trade protectionism is I think it's harming not only the Chinese player, it's probably harming their own global transition because it's going to be so expensive and who's going to fund that. So, but I think from Chinese players' uh, perspective, I, I think we should understand why people, people are nervous or scared because people feel like China is taking over the whole world. You know, the, our shares in the renewable place is drinking from 40% and sometimes 80%. So, and then from the European um, 
know, citizen point of view, there's a lot of government subsidy goes into renewable, but all the subsidy goes to the foreign player, like the Chinese renewable. I think there is some valid concern that we need to proactively address. Uh, you know, uh, just as when we opened our uh, door to the Western uh, companies 20 years ago, uh, I think Chinese players should think more than just sell the product and getting the subsidy. So there's a lot of uh, you know, renewable companies are thinking about setting up uh, manufacturing, uh, even doing some technology transfer, doing partnership. I think this kind of collaboration will be win-win uh, to both sides. Uh, Cal, recently, yeah. of course, we have this, uh, you know, I think it's encouraging news to see this uh, Sandyland's statement on enhancing cooperation to address climate crisis reached between China and the U.S., the two largest emissioner. And of course, if they join hands to tackle climate change, I mean, people have reasons to be more optimistic on that, uh, on that regard. Uh, is that what you think? Absolutely. I mean, I would like uh, to get rid of uh, most tariffs uh, between China and the U.S., and it's really sad the developments that have happened over recent years. Um, but it's encouraging to see uh, dialogue beginning, and I do believe that uh, technologies and activities around uh, green uh, activities is a great area that we can really come together as two countries. Uh, you know, climate is a case that if China pollutes, it hurts the U.S. If the U.S. pollutes, it hurts China. So it's in everyone's interest that we collaborate. And we all know that different countries have uh, different resources, different abilities, and thus that it's advantageous that one focuses on what one is best at doing. Um, so I really hope that collaboration in the, the climate area can be a way that we can start to then move into other areas. I think one of the great challenges that has happened recently is, I think it's okay that uh, companies or other countries might be protectionist in a few strategically important industries. But the word strategically important, particularly by the US has started to be used to represent clothing and uh, just about anything you sort of uh, could think about. It, it makes it a meaningless term. It should be used in a very specific context. Uh, another thing I would like to say is that I think that China, um, one thing, I'm sorry, one thing that's for, misunderstood about China is that I think the average Chinese citizen deserves quite some credit for China's increasing focus on green uh, technologies and uh, becoming more environmentally friendly. I, I think it's really the population that has been speaking to the government and saying, we care about this as they're raising their um, purchasing power, they say, we're happy to pay a little bit extra to have a green focus. Many people around the world seem to think that the Chinese government decides everything. I think this is a case where the Chinese people have spoken and been ahead of the government and the government has now followed and uh, started to take some initiatives. So it's, it's really great to see that China has done so much in electric vehicles. China has done uh, so much in different uh, renewable energies. But what is it that China needs to work on? I think the key thing that we haven't talked about so far that China has to work on is its dependence on coal. While it has grown in, in other areas, it's still really using a lot of coal uh, for, for energy production, and, and this really needs to change. I just want to echo what just uh, uh, echo, uh, Carl just said. And uh, it's not only government's responsibility to to control the climate, uh, to, to make sure the Paris Agreement is uh, the goal is achieved. It also, um, ordinary people, I mean, like uh, he said, and Chinese ordinary people, they're kind of uh, 
sensible about uh, the, the climate change. The same thing goes to the American people, some people, especially tech workers. I remember even a long time ago, uh, 10 years ago, a lot of uh, uh, tech workers, they, they are very proud of driving a uh, EV vehicle, say uh, Toyota Prius, those kind of uh, uh, hybrid EV vehicles. They, even billionaires, they, they drove those cars. So it takes not only government, but also the ordinary people uh, to make sure everybody has that uh, sensibility go into their life. And then they kind of, they be more energy uh, conscious, uh, green energy conscious, so that uh, that make it, things even, I mean, much easier to, I mean, the goal easier to achieve. Yeah, well so, said. Uh, 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 Carl, I, I think, you know, uh, Joshua mentioned an interesting point, you know, uh, you know both of you actually, uh, it's not only on the government level, uh, you know, on renewable energy, it's also about the daily lives, about the business practices. Uh, you know, speak of that, Carl, I wonder, you know, can you give us some, you know, specific examples on, you know, Chinese companies, on in what way they uh, handle or manage the green transition in their daily practices? Yeah, so I, I fully agree that this has to start at the individual level, at the company level, and then you know percolate up to the, the national level. Chinese companies are starting uh, to be more green focused. Uh, there are companies like Broad Group that are making very environmentally focused uh, housing, uh, where they're making it inside a factory in a modular way so that they can make it more environmentally friendly. Uh, they come from an air conditioning background, and so they've really worked on environmental circulation well. They have three paned windows, et cetera. You also have companies uh, like Fortile Group uh, from Ningbo, where I used to live when I was Dean of Nottingham University Business School, China. And Fortile, you know, they made uh, water filters, another area of important uh, focus. And uh, it used to be in the water filter market, you had two options. You had some filters that left in all the good minerals, but they uh, filtered out not all the bad things. And then there were some others that filtered out all the bad things, but got rid of all the good minerals from the water. And Fortile set out to try to solve this and get this happy medium. And I think that has uh, been, been really good in there, of course, other companies that have followed. Maybe they were able to do this in both cases because the leaders of the companies had really clear visions, crystal clear visions that were not only theirs, but they made sure everyone understood and embraced in the company. In the case of Fortile, they're a company also that really focuses on Chinese culture, Confucian values, et cetera, believing that it's important to have all the company sort of like one family, including the customers. Interestingly, in the development of that uh, water filter I talked about, uh, they had about, uh, I think it was eight or nine different systems that were sort of each doing a little bit more. And one of them was really expensive and just added a little bit. And uh, so they had a big discussion, should they get rid of that? But uh, then the CEO said, well, okay, if you know, your family's going to uh, be drinking this water, do you want to pay this extra amount uh, just to have that a little bit better? And of course the answer was yes. And so I, I think this sort of sense of responsibility and really thinking of, of, of the good of everyone is, is something that, that's really important. Just one final thing to mention on this, and that is that one of the things that is sometimes I think unfortunately tragically forgotten in China is that the average employees have a lot of great ideas too. And no matter how bright a CEO is, it's really important to capture all these bright ideas. I'll, I'll add some more critical points. Uh, so I agree with Carl. I think the Chinese companies are very good at innovation. 
So you know they they can get see the new opportunities uh, by the climate transition. There's a lot of new technology, new product, new offering, and we see a lot of great examples of Chinese company jumping into the wagon, and then pushing for innovation. However, uh, I think the in terms of the uh, mitigation, uh, so far I think the Chinese company has only just started. Uh, we announced the dual uh, carbon goal only uh, two and a half years ago. And the government focus or the pressure is on the high emission industry. So we can see the high emission industry have done quite a lot in reducing the carbon emission because of the government regulation. But most of the other industries, I think, are only just starting. We see the goals being announced, uh, but most company, if at all, only look at their scope one, scope two emission. Very few Chinese companies even looking into the scope three, uh, which is the supply chain emission. This is quite different than, you know, I've worked with global clients and most of clients are now already looking at the scope three. So I think uh, uh, for majority of the Chinese company, especially when they're not in the high emission industries, they will probably feel far more pressure in 2000, after 2030, when we reach the carbon peak and go through from the peak to neutral stage. I think these companies would really need to move to the mitigation. Uh, and then we're, one first step to the mitigation is you need to have very good data. Uh, when you say you're reducing your carbon emission, you better track the data accurately. Uh, and this data, you know, you should do scientific analysis on how actually you reduce the emission rather than just, you know, bring it as a slogan. Uh, so I think there's still quite a lot of long way to go. Mm. Uh, Yvonne, do you think that there's a lack of a willingness or there lack of uh, awareness or lack of a pressure, say pressure from the top, from the government? I think in general, China is in a different developed stage when you compare China to Europe and the US. Our GDP per capita is only 10,000 per capita. Uh, when, when the Western country, when they reached carbon peak, it's double our current GDP per capita. And so, you know, China seen as goal is still top-down driven. Uh, so unlike you know, a lot of European companies, they are driven by the consumer demand. They're driven, it's bottom-up driven. So, um, and now because we just announced the goal, the government is really focusing on the high emission industries. So we see the high emission industry work. And then we see the regulation is start forming on the other industry. And I'm pretty sure it's going to go cover most other, other industries. Um, but the, the companies uh, need to act earlier. If you wait until the regulations pass, it's a bit too late. A bit too late. So Joshua, what's your observation? Uh, so actually, the, yeah, about two years ago, Chinese government announced the commitment. Um, I would say uh, people here uh, tends to be more uh, listening to their authority to set a goal and then execute. But uh, in in addition to that, I would say the Chinese companies and the individuals should also um, borrow the best practices from, uh, from Western world. With that, we come to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests again. And you can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us.